Amen. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Kickoff Sunday here at First Presbyterian Church. If you're wondering what Kickoff Sunday is all about, Kickoff Sunday is the first Sunday of our new Christian education program year, new Bible studies, new Sunday school classes, new circles. All these things are starting today. I hope that if you came in off of the Avenue entrance or parking lot that you saw the tables that were set up and we hope that you are taking advantage of some of the signups and opportunities for uh, just for ways to get connected as we love Jesus Christ, love one another, and love the city. I will say, however, I not only want to thank you for being here at First Presbyterian Church this Sunday, I want to thank you for getting into this room because I know that there is shrimp and there are tacos, uh, breakfast tacos and pastries all out in the Mosaic lobby. And I understand, believe me, I understand the gravitational pull of that kind of food on a Sunday morning. I actually don't eat before I preach because I'm, I'm just scared that I might get nervous or something like that. So it's killing me that it's out there. I can smell it coming down the halls. But I want to thank you all for pulling yourselves away from that and being in here with us today. You know, it's actually kind of interesting that we're, that we're having, you know, all this food here today, that kind of fellowship, because, because the passage that we're about to study from the gospel of Mark is about this interesting connection between church and food and Bible study and food. Have you ever noticed that whenever church people together get together, we eat now, I don't know if that's just because Jesus, in, in setting aside a, a sign and seal, a, a, a visual representation of his love for us with the Lord's Supper, if that's because of that or if it's just because we get hungry and we just like to eat. I'm not sure which it is. But there's always this intimate connection, it seems, between those times when we get together to study the Bible and those times when we get together to eat. And, and in our story today, we're going to explore that a little bit and maybe even reframe that idea a little bit as we talk about the feeding of the 5,000. It's found in Mark chapter 6, beginning in the 30th verse. And I would direct you, direct you to that passage. You can either read along with me in your bulletin. You can read along on the screens. You can read along in your own personal Bible. Or we have our pew Bibles back. If you can't find a place to read along, that's your fault. We have got so many opportunities and so many vehicles for you to read. Even if you're, you've got your phone with you, you can do that. But verse 30 of chapter 6 The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Now this is, if you remember back a couple of weeks ago, if you look just a, a few verses before this, Jesus sent his disciples out on a two-by-two mission trip to heal, to preach, to, to cast out demons. They are now making their report back to, to Jesus. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him that all, all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a des desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to, listen to this, he began to teach them many things. 
And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered to them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And Jesus said to them, well, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they took and all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish. And those who ate the loaves and fish were 5,000 men. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O oh Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we pray that today, O oh God, by your Holy Spirit, you would open your word to us, that you would speak to us through it, and that you would help us to feed upon the truth of the word of God. O oh Lord, may the word of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Pierre Bernard Hill became the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in the, in the year of First Presbyterian's 75th anniversary, 100 years ago in 1921. Now, P.B. Hill, or as he was known to friends, Bernard, was probably our most colorful pastor. He grew up in Virginia. He pastored churches in Virginia. He pastored churches in Kentucky and Texas. He was a pastor to coal miners, to prison inmates, and even to Virginia aristocrats. He served as a missionary to Korea and served as the first chaplain of the Texas Rangers. He had a colorful career. He was a radio preacher in Texas, and he was the, actually he was the first radio preacher in Texas. And even in his retirement, he planted a church for cowboys and ranchers in Kerrville. Now, when Dr. Hill and his family arrived in San Antonio in 1921, he found the leaders of First Presbyterian Church planning to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the completion of John McCullough's arrival and first church. And they were planning, or excuse me, as they were planning, it dawned on Bernard that he and the congregation would be celebrating not only the anniversary of the founding of the church, but they would also be celebrating the 75th anniversary of Protestantism in San Antonio. The Protestant Reformation of Europe was a movement that sought to reform and invigorate Christianity by encouraging people to read and study the Bible for themselves. Now, while this effort was welcomed by many regular lay people, there were many leaders in the medieval Roman Catholic Church who saw this democratization of Christianity as a threat 
a threat to their power, a threat to their status, a threat to their property. If the people could read the scriptures for themselves, the church would lose its spiritual leverage over them. And empires like France and Spain, in those empires, the Reformation was violently and vigorously put down. Now for this reason, the popular reading and study of the Bible was illegal in the Spanish Empire of North and South America. But then, in 1810, Mexico won its independence from Spain, followed by Texas independence in 1836. This newfound freedom opened the door for the Reformation to finally come to Mexico and to Texas. In 1846, John McCullough and other Protestants used that open door to bring the Reformation, but more importantly, to bring the open reading and study of the Bible to San Antonio. When John McCullough and his little church came to the city, along with Methodists and Episcopalians, most of the people in the city, I'm confident to conservatively say 90% of the people in the city had never owned or read or opened a Bible for themselves. It was illegal, but it's something that we take for granted. And 75 years later, P.B. Hill realized that he and his committee excuse me, we're not just planning the birthday party for the church. They were about to mark the 75th anniversary of the year that the Reformation came to San Antonio. It was a celebration of the Bible and it was an, a celebration of the incredible good news of Jesus Christ. So Dr. Hill reached out to the other Protestant pastors in town to see if they were in on celebrating the diamond jubilee of Protestantism. A certain amount of delicacy and sensitivity was necessary because P.B. Hill didn't want this to be a condemnation of their Catholic neighbors. He wanted to make sure it was a celebration of Protestantism without being a slap in the face to any of their neighbors. And so they talked and they, they shared their plans with the, the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Archbishop and, and the powers that be in town. And, and the, the, uh, the rapport was very good. And so everything moved forward occasionally, even with the Catholic, their Catholic neighbors participating in the celebration. But the week was filled with special speakers. And with all kinds of fellowship gatherings, I am sure they ate all week long. According to Green Payton, who was Hill's biographer, the climax of the week's festivities was a mammoth parade. Starting at the Alamo, 30,000 Protestants, not just Presbyterians, 30,000 Protestants wound their ways through the narrow downtown streets of San Antonio, marching eight abreast, followed by 2,000 older people in cars and carriages. And the line was so long that the first section of the, of, the, of the parade made it back to the Alamo before the last group left. And so there was just this circle, and the, there was a band that started the whole event playing the Star Spangled Banner, and then the march began with the playing of Onward Christian Soldiers. But then behind the bands, leading the marchers, 
were these different groups. And among those groups was the whole parade was led by one little girl in a white dress with a broad blue sash bearing a huge open Bible with gold edges around the sides. The little girl's name was Martha Hill, the 10-year-old daughter of P.B. Hill and the mother of our own Dr. Anna Armstrong, who is an active member of this church and a good friend to many of us. So Martha Hill was leading this enormous parade, and observers estimated that there were 35,000 onlookers, excuse me, 35,000 participants in the parade from all denominations and all ethnic groups, and as many as 75,000 spectators lining the streets. 175 years ago, the Protestant Reformation came to San Antonio, and it came big. Now, why did Dr. Hill believe that the anniversary of First Presbyterian Church's founding should be a celebration of the Reformation and the Bible? Well, he wrote this. The study of the great teachings of God's word may strengthen you who believe and may bring many who have made no profession of faith in Christ to integrate their lives with a sovereign God and enter into his eternal purpose through Jesus Christ, his son. He was saying it'll not only invigorate those who know God's word, it will help people to understand that God actually has a plan and a purpose for their lives as well. It'll help them to see how valuable they are to this heavenly father for themselves. And the whole point was that P.B. Hill wanted people to understand that the Bible matters. And the leaders of First Presbyterian Church and P.B. Hill thought that it was worthy to celebrate that for 75 years, the people of San Antonio read and were fed by the word of God. Now that, that story about feeding and reading reminds me of this story of the loaves and the fish. It reminds me of this story that we've read from Mark, a story about a day when thousands of people were fed, not just by loaves and fish, but by the word of God. The story of the feeding of the 5,000 is familiar to many people, especially those who've grown up in the church, realizing the exhaustion of his disciples after going out and ministering two by two, healing, casting out demons, preaching the kingdom of God. The disciples returned, shared their success with Jesus, and he said, you guys look tired. Let's, let's go out on the boat. Let's go across the lake. You all need to get something to eat. You need to rest. Didn't matter. They were all known now. The word of Jesus and his followers were spread, and a crowd began to assemble. Apparently, they'd gotten a taste of it while the disciples were out. They'd heard Jesus teach before, and they couldn't get enough. And as soon as they landed on the shore, they were clamoring could not get close enough. They wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. And when Jesus went ashore, it says that he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. As the day got later, the disciples realized that there, that there was no food 
Nobody was planning this gathering. There were no food trucks. There was no buffet line. There was no cover dish. Nobody had planned for this. And there was no food. And, and the disciples could tell, well, maybe people are starting to get a little restless. And so they said, Jesus, you need to send this hungry crowd away so that they can get food. You know, it's, it seems like kind of a desperate situation. It kind of reminds me of those pictures we've seen this past week of the people gathered around the Kabul airport, hungry and thirsty and tired, waiting and hoping for the chance to get out of Afghanistan. They were desperate. But rather than send them away, because Jesus was teaching them, he was giving them something important, rather than send them away, Jesus answered them and he said, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 2,000 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Come on, rabbi, teacher, Lord, this job is just too big. We don't have anything to give them. We don't have enough money to pay for it. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look, go and see. And at his order, the disciples began to search the crowd for food. And they located five loaves of bread and two fish among the people. So Jesus had them sit down in groups of 50 or 100 and thanked his heavenly father for the food about to be received. And you can just imagine how incredulous people were in hearing him make that prayer. But he gave thanks, and then they began to hand out the food. And at the end of the day, after everybody, I love that it says, after everybody was satisfied, after everybody was full, there was still 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish after the enormous crowd had been fed. Now, this is an awesome miracle of Jesus. And it is an awesome miracle story. But here's what I don't want us to miss. So often, when we read this and we read other miracle stories, we get so dazzled by the supernatural event that we miss something really important. We get so wrapped up in the sign that we forget to look at the thing or the person to whom that sign is pointing. Because in this case, the sign, this miracle, is pointing to Jesus. There's an old Japanese proverb that says, if you see a finger pointing to the moon, don't look at the finger, look at the moon. Well, we don't want to miss the moon while we're staring at the finger. We don't want to miss Jesus while we're looking at the loaves and fish. Because at its heart, this story is not about a throng of people who came to Jesus looking for food. This is a story about a multitude of people who came to Jesus looking for truth. They got hungry while they were there. But they came looking for teaching. For the word of God. They gathered to hear the teachings of Jesus. They were hungry for the word of God. They came for the word. The food was incidental. I mean, yes, Jesus, King Jesus, held a feast that day. 
But the real feast of Jesus Christ, the real feast of Jesus Christ the King, is the feast of the Word. Jesus fed their spiritual hunger so that they wouldn't have to leave and so that He could continue feeding their spiritual hunger. Now, as with all miracles, the purpose of this miracle is to draw our attention to the Word of God made flesh, the one who is teaching the Word of God, God's truth. Now, let me step back from this for, uh, on this for a second. I know that food is important. Of course, food is important. Jesus said, when you pray, pray for your daily bread. And when he wanted to give us a tangible visible representation of his love, a visible sign and seal of his love for us, his sacrifice for us. He went to the table, he used food, and he said, this bread is my body which is broken for you. This cup is the new covenant poured out in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take you all of it and do this in remembrance of me. Food is important. But we have to remember that food is the sign. Food is the finger pointing. Because Jesus also said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus was saying that he, the word of God, is the most necessary, most basic element of life. The Word of God is as basic as food. He is basic to human life, especially eternal life. He is as basic as oxygen, as water, as air, or gravity, or food are to physical life. And they left that day with their bellies full of bread and fish. But more importantly, they left with their minds full of God's truth. So again, why were they there that day? They were there to be fed spiritually. They came to hear Jesus teach. They came for the word. When you go to the movie theater, you don't go and pay for the movie and then just hang out at the concession stand, right? I mean, I love popcorn, but I came to see the movie. We came for the content. And that is what needs to be kept in mind. They didn't come to eat. They came to learn. They came not for what Jesus could give them, but what he would teach them. And that's why we're here today. This is what Christian education and kickoff Sunday are all about. Today is a celebration of the real feast of the king. It's a celebration of the word of God. It's a celebration of the Reformation because the Reformation is a revolution that happens when the Bible is studied and it is taught seriously. The word of God is the reason that we gather. Everything else is secondary. This story is not really a story about eating. It's a story equating the food of the word to the necessities of life. It's a story saying that the word of God is more important 
even than food. The real feast of the king is the word of God. Not convinced yet? Let me share some things that Jesus said. In the wilderness, when Satan tried to turn Jesus against his heavenly father, this is what happened. The tempter came and said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Food is not as important as the word. The word is more important than food. In John chapter 4, at one point, the disciples were urging him to eat, saying, Rabbi, eat. You haven't eaten all day. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples looked around at one another and they said, has somebody brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The word of God is the food that we gather to feed upon. Our mission now and then is the word of God. So what does that mean? It means first our mission is to learn the word of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses tells the people that consuming the truth of God is more important than consuming food. Listen, because you're going to recognize something. Deuteronomy 8 says, the whole commandment that I command you today, shall, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember, remember that word, remember the whole way that the Lord, your God has led you these 40 days in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Have we heard that before? Jesus didn't make that up. From the time of Moses, God has said we have got to keep the priority where it belongs, which is the truth of God. Our mission is to learn and to study the word of God. Why? He tells us so that we will do the will of God. But it's not just that. The word of God begins not by just telling us what to do. It begins with what God has done for us. Go back to that word I told you to remember. It was the word remember. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Study of God's word begins with remembrance of God's great grace and love for us. So we study to remember that our God is, is not the God who condemns, but the God who sets us free. Our God is the one, we study to remember that he is the one that while we were yet sinners, sent his son to die for us. He is the one that we remember, that we learn, that we read about, loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever lives and believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Remember, we learn to do and to remember. Second, our mission is to teach the word of God. In his great commission, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Again, teaching. That's what Jesus was doing beside the sea. On the one hand, our mission is to teach the word of God to those who do not know it so that they too will do the will of God. But on the other hand, and perhaps more importantly, we teach the word of God so that people will know what God has done for them. The apostle Paul wrote, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We have got to introduce people to the truth and good news of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we have to introduce them. Sometimes we have to reintroduce them. Third, and ultimately, we study, we learn, we teach so that people will love the word of God. We don't learn more about God simply so that we'll have more information about God. We learn about God so that we'll love him more. You know, when two people are in love, they will go to great lengths to find out more and more about each other. That's not just stalking, that's courtship. But you remember when you first fell in love, you wanted to find out everything she was interested in. You wanted to find out what his hobbies were. You wanted to find out where they worked. You wanted to find out how they got there when you might happen to chance meet them on the way to the break room. You wanted to know. When you get involved in a hobby, when you take a special interest in something, you learn all you can about it because there is an intimate connection between knowing something, knowing someone, and loving them. Those two things are connected. There is a deep connection between knowing and loving God. There's an intimate relationship between our knowledge of God and our love for God. The knowledge of God is the fuel that burns in our hearts and the mind is the tinder that stokes the furnace of the heart. And the more we learn about God, the more we love him and the more we love him, the more we will want to learn. And so why are we making such a big deal about Sunday school, about Bible study, about starting our Christian education year? Why are we making such a big deal about this? Why did P.B. Hill and First Presbyterian Church make such a big deal about the Re Reformation and reading the Bible in San Antonio a hundred years ago? Allow me to use these words of P.B. Hill himself. He wrote, as man contemplates the manifestations of God's power in the universe, he is filled with holy awe. He gazes into the infinite space above him and marvels as innumerable shining worlds move with mathematical precision across the plain of heaven. He stands mystified at both life and death. He contemplates the great crises of life in conscious helplessness. He feels the mighty conflicts in his own soul and cries out to this almighty God, what is man, literally frail man, that thou art mindful of him? And then he learns 
that this great God who holds the destiny of men and nations in his hand will be his father and will be his helper if he will let him. He learns that by faith in Jesus Christ, he himself can link his life to the life and purposes of this invincible one. To be to P.B. Hill and the members of First Presbyterian Church, the Bible matters, and it was worth study and celebration because this is what it teaches us. 100 years later, I fear that we might be taking God's word for granted. So let's make the 175th anniversary a celebration of the good news. Not only breaking into our city, but breaking into our own hearts, breaking into our own habits, breaking into our own schedules. This is not a time for convenience. This is a time for commitment. It's time we got past the idea of raking the leaves and started digging for gold. 100 years ago, First Presbyterian Church led a huge celebration to declare that the Bible matters. And we are emphasizing that by giving you opportunities, Sunday school classes, men's groups, women's groups, Bible studies, young adult groups, senior adult groups, adult groups of every age, every configuration. They're all listed in a booklet out there on every flat surface in this church. And we just want to get you connected with those groups so that you will get connected to the word of God. Because we believe that the Bible still matters. But I want to ask you today, do you, do you believe that? Do we as a church still believe that? Watching the news today, I'm going to put it in a different way, a way that I've asked before. Does our world need less truth or more truth right now? Do we need less knowledge of God or more knowledge of God's grace right now? Do we need less of God's promises or more of God's promises right now? Do we need less of God's word right now or more of God's word right now? Let the real feast of the king begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's not just us. We look out of these doors. We walk out onto the street. We go to our offices. We go to our clubs. We go to our schools. And we see people who are starving. We see people who are like sheep without a shepherd. We feel like sheep without a shepherd sometimes. What is your answer? Your answer is teaching. Your answer is your truth. Your answer is your word. Your answer is the Bible. It's your good news. Lord, help us to understand how important it is. Not just that we celebrate the open Bible, but that we read, we study, we absorb, and we teach the open Bible. It was illegal here for so long, and it is still illegal in so many parts of the world. But what's worse, Lord, is that it is still neglected in every country, in every group of people. Let that not be so with us. Lord, let the real feast of the word begin. Feed us. Feed us. Feed us. Amen.